The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. I'm joined for The Bigger Picture today by Tim Evans, who is Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going to begin today? Uh, We're going to start with a new book that's uh, been written by the British uh, sociologist, Frank Faroudi. Um, I think Frank in his youth was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, I think he is some type of, how would I describe him, probably a bit of a libertarian Marxist. Uh, He certainly has his views, you know, informed by Marxism. Um, And what he's done, he's written this brilliant book called 100 Years of Identity Crisis, culture war over socialization and what he's done he's used all his talents um, as a sociologist to really go back through the history of what we today call the culture war and he's tried to um, tease out uh, the tributaries from which it uh, has flowed a bit of the history and to map some of the ideas and also some of the implications and i find his analysis quite powerful um, just as I find many sociological insights powerful, you know, the whole point of really sociology, um, when it's at its best, is to uh, mirror back to the world um, not only common sense insights, but what are called second order constructs, which are more powerful concepts, theory, theories and frameworks by, by which we can understand what is going on. And I think he's done that. So what he basically argues, Simon, is that uh, in the late 19th century, partly probably falling from the enlightenment of the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, um, science started to have a serious impact um, on the way we thought about culture, but also raising children. So he says that there were all kinds of of, of, of different you know, political traditions that got on what you might call loosely the scientific bandwagon. Mm. Um, there were, for example, variously European socialists, there were liberals, uh, there were later fascists in the 20th century, there were clearly communists, um, and there were also eugenicists. And eugenicists, eugenics is an odd one in that um, we forget now how in the late 19th century, early 20th century, If you were a psychiatrist, if you were engaged in psychology, then you pretty much believed in eugenics um, right across the political spectrum. Uh, You believed in eugenics as being a sort of true and valid uh, science and a a prism which would help you to view and order society. Anyway, all these different traditions um, basically, um, in different ways, wanted to uh, create what was then called, by today's standards, fairly sexist language, but various forms of new man. And you see this um, uh, with uh, eugenics. Uh, look at the way that the Webbs, Beatrice Webb and her husband yeah. Sydney, uh, informed, for example, the direction of the Fabian Society that they helped to create. Lots of their writings are on eugenics. Look later at the works of Lenin, um, of Trotsky, uh, you know, very much part of the early subtext of the Soviet Union was to create Lenin's new man and and Trotsky had his own version. This idea of sort of recreating humanity, um, you saw with 
uh, Mussolini in Italy when he took over in 1922 and subsequently with Adolf Hitler, um, you saw this desire to, to socialize people, particularly youngsters uh, and infants into uh, a new way of existing, to almost invoke science and technology and to envision a future humanity where we would be more um, than we have been. You actually get modern versions of this. Um, um, uh, for example, there are lots of libertarians uh, in California um, and, and in other parts of the world who, who partly fall from what used to be called the new right. These people also believe that science can be invoked uh, to deal with the problems, I'm being uh, fairly extreme here, but almost the problems of of death and taxes. You know, there are, there, are, there are lots of libertarians who believe in life extension, they believe in transhumanism, um, they believe in cryonics, they believe that one day science and industry and technology will come to um, their, their rescue. Um, um, and the key here, what, what Frank Frudy has done, is he's basically teased out the roots of this culture war between those who believe that uh, children can be raised in new ways, mm. socialized and, 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 and sort of re-educated, to use a phrase, um, as I say, to be made more of themselves than they would otherwise be, um, and, and those other people who believe that, that it's risky um, uh, to get tied into such utopia visions, that almost humans are prone to visions, be they religious worldviews or secular worldviews, and often um, the journeys that you go on through their perspectives leads you back to the usual problems associated with the fairly timeless terrain of the human condition. But it's a fascinating um, study. Um, he's written it up very briefly in a blog uh, a, a platform, I think, called Spiked, which I think is some kind mm -hmm. of libertarian left platform that's quite popular. But, but the, the big thing I'm offering here is his book. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of the, that Jesuit maxim um, from many, many years earlier, give me the child of the first seven years, I'll give you the man. So presumably not even a new thing in the um, late 19th century. But And how does he then uh, apply this to today's culture? wars I and mean, we're talking about a hundred years of the culture wars but i mean most of us would have felt a few years ago wouldn't really have thought about it very much so basically he argues that what all all these um uh beliefs in almost the perfectibility of humankind uh that that it that it, it goes beyond mere socialization and it becomes a form of social engineering um, and of course, you know, whether you're looking at Lenin or Stalin or Hitler or whoever, um, they were social engineers in extremis. And what Frank basically argues um, is that the modern term that we used in Europe and North America to, um, to, to sort of lay a veneer over um, over this quest is we we talk about the rise of awareness or you know or, or, or awareness rising the idea is that that somehow um, um, we can be raised to a, a high level of awareness and consciousness and that we can from that uh, in, in indulge in, in engage in endeavors which will 
which will renew us and take take us to higher levels of existence um, and capability. Now, what he argues is that there are basically two sides of um, of this. There's there's the technocratic side uh, that that you know the technocrats who seek to to, to govern, they, they, they attempt to justify their activities on the basis of their expertise and their education, rather than a, than a set political vision. Um, you know, technocracy is almost a self-consciously attempt to depoliticize uh, controversial issues by outsourcing it to decision makers uh, uh, who are experts. And that could be anyone from law courts to international bodies. And he uses the example of the IMF. And then um, over and above that, there are then what he calls um, a therapeutic containment or, or, or a therapeutic ethos. And these are people who are involved in um, psychology and, and invariably my own area, the social sciences. Um, and what they do is they come with a certain uh, agenda. They, they don't inhabit the neutral space of the technocrats, um, but they basically view the past as being outdated um, they see the past as almost a, a, a caricature of a, of, a, of a black and white postcard or film, if you will. Mm. And they think that what has gone is outdated ideals and values, and that indeed, even if we can't be remade overtly um, through behavioural science, the world of nudging and, and re-education, mm. thinking that we, we can be, be, we can be uh, remade afresh. So... Um, uh, that's basically his view, and, if, and I think I wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but but I, I think he thinks that that what this becomes, both through the technocrats, uh, but all th also through um, the identitarian activists, um, under the guise of rising awareness, what this becomes um, is a new form of uh, of, as he puts it, top-down control. Um, that uh, if you're an expert, if you're a technocrat, um, if if you're an identitarian activist, um, then 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 this quest um, empowers you. It perhaps to some extent enriches you, um, but also uh, you get to uh, message um, and to articulate all manner of calls to action that get that encourage people to change or to explain to them how they should feel, how they should think, how they should act. Um, and, and of course, this is also always regarded in, the term, in terms of, of long-term change, you know, for, and creating long-lasting change. So it's an interesting analysis. It's an anatomy of, of, of something we all talk about. And I think it's historically and socially quite interesting. I have to confess something. I don't buy a hundred percent of it mm. um, um, because it does strike me that where we're very different from, let's say, the world of Trotsky, Lenin, Hitler, or whatever, is that we now all, as individuals, genuinely, uh, we're the first generation to exist in an age of of individualized, real time communication on this planet. And when you get millions of people, uh, not just traveling, you know. On, uh, jet airplanes or speaking on the telephone but being able to see each other on the screens where where and and to do so and talk to each other in real time um and and almost a, a real-time communications that transcends geospatial um uh boundaries then 
uh, it's inevitable that you're going to get, particularly amongst the well-educated and, and the well-meaning, uh, a new form of discourse. So I don't think this is purely, as Frank describes, some sort of, you know, I don't know, autocratic top-down project. I think there's also um, uh, a heavy degree of bottom-up um, uh, incentivization here, where, quite frankly, the planet, all of us are trying to get to know each other, irrespective of race, gender, you know, um, uh, orientation or whatever, trying to get to know each other in a really profound and deep way for the first time. So, um, so I find his book really interesting. I, I, I confess I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna really go through it in some detail, but um, I think it, 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 and I think it tells a good story, but I, I don't think it tells the whole story. Okay, and that uh, book is Frank um, Faroudi's book, uh, which is 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization. Tim, thank you for the time for us, I think, to change topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, what's our second topic today? Well, the second top uh, topic has to be, I think, the AUKUS pact that's been uh, agreed, signed between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia. Um, it's, it's made uh, an awful lot of waves and continues to make waves, for example, um, uh, with France, who are very disappointed they're no longer able to sell to Australia. Um, some 47 billion pounds worth of, 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 of submarines. Um, but what interests me is not only the deal, but the implications of it. So obviously the Australians have, uh, have agreed uh, to beef up their Navy. They've long planned to do that, um, but to go the whole hog now with a new um, flotilla of, of, uh, of nuclear powered submarines. These aren't going to be nuclear submarines in the sense of launching intercontinental ballistic missiles, but these are going to be uh, nuclear-powered submarines, mm. which means that they can stay below the surface um, for, a, for a long time. And uh, a, a lot of that technology, a lot of that know-how, um, of course, uh, um, is, it will come not only from the United States, uh, but, but also, one would assume, um, the, the Royal Navy and British industry, because we have such a lot of expertise in developing nuclear powered submarines ourselves, um, and also crucially working very closely with, let's not forget, the Royal Australian Navy. Um, but over and above all that, um, what I find really interesting is an analysis that appeared in The Guardian, um, written by Rana Mitter. I don't know who Rana Mitter is, but uh, whoever they are, they've written a very, very good article. And basically what it says is that um, from a military point of view, um, this new partnership uh, uh, shows the agility of, 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 and the potential for, uh, for what is called brilliantly, I think, uh, mini lateral deals. Traditionally, we we had supranational deals, oh. or we had bilateral deals. Um, what what this writer is arguing is that the agility shown in doing this deal, and also 
I have to say the secrecy with which it was hatched shows that, um, that, that we might be entering a new age where, you know, um, when faced with new challenges in a rapidly changing world, uh, suddenly out of the blue, there can come all manner of mini lateral deals. But the other thing I find interesting is, yeah, sure, this is obviously about recognizing the power, in a sense, is moving away from uh, Europe uh, and the Atlantic and economic power and growth is moving east. It's moving to the Middle East and then over to India and, and indeed um, to the Far East. In fact, you know, the whole world of the Pacific Rim mm as well as the South and China Sea is becoming so, so important. What this article basically argues is that although uh, China may um, feel um, hemmed in or threatened by, by this move, although, you know, as it points out, you know, China hasn't been that vociferous, uh, actually, uh, in its criticism of this deal. But, but whereas, um, the, the, you know, it, this may bind closer in, in terms of security in the military, Australia, the UK, um, and, and, and the US, and indeed partners in places like um, uh, Japan, and indeed in the future, India. Um, what this may do is encourage closer uh, trade relations with China. The idea here is that um, making sure that the South China Sea remains open to global trade mm. um, uh, could just provide the incentive for the United Kingdom and, and then indeed for China to join um, this, this trade agreement, which technically um, uh, is uh, um, called the, um, uh, the, um, the, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, it flows off the tongue, doesn't it? It does. I mean, one of the really interesting things is that obviously, I think, I think Britain, as it as it gets closer to Australia and does a trade deal with Australia, probably wants to use that trade deal to muscle in to leverage its way into the 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 sea pip tip um, deal. Um, what's really interesting is that uh, for all China's complaints about the AUKUS deal, very quickly after. Um, China itself has apparently applied to join this trading partnership, which obviously focuses around uh, the Pacific. And so it could be um, that there is a trade deal in the future, which may have um, some lower and therefore more competitive trading standards than, for example, would be off on offer with Europe, um, but also may raise some of the standards in China um, and, and therefore encouraging tr China uh, not necessarily um, to, to move us all towards what only a little while ago was called the race to the bottom, but to raise their game. And, and, but but for, for the United Kingdom or, or this newly branded global Britain uh, to segue itself into this extraordinarily high growth part of the world but because of the deal the AUKUS deal do so in a more secure way and that I think is a really interesting prospect global Britain working with lots and lots of new global partners in truly faraway places whilst also providing an incentive 
for China to become part of a new trading arrangement um, that will deliver higher standards, um, but will also be truly competitive. Well, I think that's a good thing yes. with, for example, the European Union. Well, why are the French so um, angry? Um, I mean, obviously, they've lost the, the defence contract. Is it just that? But in withdrawing their ambassadors from Australia and the United States, it's that's a, quite a serious move for any nation. Well, I think, I mean, you, you know, I think that if we had uh, done a £47 billion deal uh, with uh, another country overseas, uh, only, to have the, only to have it uh, overthrown out of the blue without any discussion or consultation by people who are supposedly close allies of ours, um, given the number of jobs involved, the technical skills, I think we would be pretty miffed. So I, I do have sympathy with the French who, who think that, that, that this partnership hasn't just come out of the blue, but it's been pretty brutishly applied. Then in addition to that, of course, when you think about, as we discussed before, the history of the European Union, and then before that, the European Economic Community, and before that, the iron, coal, and steel sort of mm. um, uh, uh, grouping in, in, you know, in the late 40s and 50s, as it really was seeded and developed. Well, you know, traditionally, the heart of Europe, I mean, the, the European idea was sort of, it was a blueprint produced in, in France. It was to be mainly funded by the Germans, and it was ultimately signed off by, by the Americans. Um, I think the French therefore worry uh, that Britain is pivoting with the United States into the Far East and into the Pacific, that we will therefore be segueing into a very, very high growth part of the economy for this century. And I think they're worried that they and their historic blueprinted project um, will lag, lag behind and will be in trouble. I think they're also painfully aware that there might be political upsetment coming um, in the forthcoming German elections and that um, and they're not sure where that will go. And the, and the last thing is that, of course, the, you know, uh, President Macron is indeed facing an election in the not too distant future himself. And again, to, to, uh, for the French electorate to feel um, that, that he has in some extent been duped, um, which is probably how they feel, and jilted, um, uh, uh, you know, is 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 far from ideal, given a looming election not that many months away. Tim, time for us to turn to our third topic: sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I am in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University, Professor Tim Evans. So, Tim, our third and final topic, please. Um, so the third topic, again, I don't know if it, I'm having a biased week, but the third week is uh, an article that appeared in The Guardian. In fact, there have been a series of interesting articles on this recently. But it's an article called Private Hospitals Profit, NHS waiting list as people without insurance pay. And basically what this uh, article reports is that there is a boom um, in private medicine in this country. Um, obviously the NHS uh, um, waiting times, the hospital waiting lists in England um, 
this summer reached quite a remarkable 5.6 million people. Uh, and it does seem that, that the NHS is struggling to cope with the backlog, um, uh, not only from what were already high waiting lists prior to the pandemic, but they've been compounded and made so much worse by it, of course. So um, we have these increasingly high um, um, waiting uh, lists. We also have independent hospitals in this country um, that have done an awful lot to support the NHS uh, during uh, the pandemic. And, and, and we have a, a multi-billion pound contract apparently in England between the NHS um, and the independent sector uh, whereby independent hospitals are going to try and help um, do, you know, all kinds of treatments and surgery um, to help ease th that backlog. But over and above all that, uh, it, th there's now firm data that suggests that um, huge swathes of, of the British population are, are proactively uh, engaging uh, private hospitals. Mm. And so in a way that, that far exceeds you know, the, 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 the 13 million people who have either private medical insurance or various forms of um, uh, health cover. Be it There's people who have not actually already insured, but have decided they're going to pay. Yeah, these, these are people are technically in, in healthcare, they're called self-funders. And, mm. what, and what the latest research shows um, is that now, uh, not only are independent hospitals becoming progressively more profitable and viable, and one can imagine that, that people in capital markets are looking perhaps to expand them and invest in them in the months and years ahead. But it seems that, that more than 20% of the electorate uh, or the population are, are looking to engage and to use private uh, healthcare uh, in some kind of way, whether it's for hips, hernias, um, cancer treatment, heart bypasses, whether it's for, you know, um, you know, um, intermediate surgery or complex or major complex forms of surgery, um, this is significant. And I have to say, um, one group uh, where, where I think this is um, intriguing, and, and I do agree with this group, there's a, there's a group um, called, it's a think tank called the Center for Health and the Public Interest. And David Rowland, their director, has said, states in The Guardian, and I quote, there is a big risk that unless government provides adequate funding for the NHS, more and more people will be forced to pay privately, which in turn will under, undermine middle class support for a tax funded NHS. You know, if you go back 20 years, I don't know when, I don't know, 10% of people use private healthcare. Okay, that's fine. But when you start to have 20, 21, maybe 25% of the population who are really looking maybe to take out new forms of insurance or are going to self-fund or do deals whereby they might get, you know, low interest loans or a family or some friends pull, pull resources together to help mum or, or a son or whatever to get the surgery and the treatment they need in a timely manner, that can have huge electoral ramifications. You can win quite a sizable uh, majority in the House of Commons with you know, only a 10% swing. So if you start to have 20, 25% of your population um, who come to um, access, get used to, um, and start in some way to rely on um, the private sector, that can have almost a disproportionate impact in the electoral sphere of politics. I mean, it's not 
this isn't completely novel. I mean, even long before COVID, I remember reading umpteen stories about people who decided to go to places like India, for instance, or to the continent to get operations done that they couldn't get done quickly enough on the NHS. They were also considered to be cheaper than having it done through private healthcare in the UK. I mean, I, I don't know what numbers are involved there, but I, I've read that many times. But that quote you gave implies that the problem of the NHS is it doesn't have enough money. But is that really the problem of the NHS? It gets more money all the time. Is it used wisely? Well, the, the, the reality is that um, uh, th- that it may need more money, or may more more money may act in you know, a harm it. So, on the money side, we know, don't we, that the government is increasing national insurance by one point two five percent. It wants mm. billions more invest in the NHS. We've discussed it before, Simon. Yes, and then transfer that money to social care. Well, the first thing is, if you have. Um, uh, a country like the United Kingdom, which is somewhere, arguably somewhere near peak of cultural Laffer curve, there is no guarantee that just because you've raised taxes, your treasury is going to get more money in. You may stifle growth and you may end up with less money in. So that's the first caveat. The second caveat is maybe um, if we spend even more on the NHS, and I mean over and above the recent tax rise, uh, for example, if we raid other pots, that maybe this will improve the health situation. However, conversely, there's a law in economics called Gammon's Law, we've discussed it before, whereby the argument there is if you have an enormous bureaucracy, and this can be public and private, and you just put more money into it, then this can let lower productivity and you can actually have less light, or in this, inst- or in this instance, um, healthcare emitted from it. So what we don't know is will the money, would more money and will more money actually be raised? If it is, and it's put into the NHS, given current incentives and structures, will it actually get through to where it's supposed to, the patients? Or, for example, will it go in uh, higher pay for doctors Mm. or professionals? Um, Or will that money reduce productivity um, um, and and, and never quite get through to the patient? The big question overhanging all this is, is this sort of bumpy but 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 nevertheless seemingly um, um, ongoing gradual growth of private healthcare is that something that's just going to carry on is it to some extent uh, inevitable given people's uh, psychology of consumerism now people are less deferential when they want something they want it you know in a timely and quick manner and in a consumer friendly manner or um, or is the NHS actually um, going to do this well clear the backlog and live to, su- to survive another day. The truth is, I don't think anyone in number 10, the treasury on the left, the right, up and down, no, and I don't. But what I do think is that this could be an inflection point. If this country gets this wrong, and really we move to a world where 20 or 25% of people start to get used to going private in some way, that could have a serious impact on the electoral sphere of our politics, and indeed, to requote David Rowland again, this could in turn uh, undermine middle-class support for a tax-funded NHS. So I think it's a serious situation. We potentially have a very serious inflection point. Jim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back talking to me again in a fortnight's time. 
The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.